Good evening, listeners. It's the 18th of November, 2018, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lori Lutz. And I'm Lillian Paget-Cobb. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study, and here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all of the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight, we are joined by Katerina Lundy. Katerina is a third-year master's student with Dr. Peter McAvoy in the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology in the College of Agricultural Sciences. Welcome, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> so your research focuses on an insect biological control system to study the um, benefits and risks associated with biological controls. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit more about that system and what makes it an ideal system for you to study? Sure. <clears throat> so I study the cinnabar moth, um, and it's um, uh, one of its host plants in Western Oregon. Um, so the cinnabar moth was brought from Europe um, and released in Western Oregon in like the 70s and 80s to control a noxious invasive weed, tansy ragwort. Um, this was a pretty costly weed. It's toxic to cattle and horses. And so it was getting into feed hay and causing a lot of um, trouble in the Willamette Valley. Um, so we released this caterpillar along with two other insects to control the weed. Um, and then we continued uh, to, so this was the Oregon Department of Agriculture uh, making these releases and um, they started redistributing the moth into the mountains, so the coast range and the Cascades. And that was um, kind of following clear cuts. Uh, Tansy ragwort was invading mountain meadows and these um, mountain spaces. So we released the moth up there and um, there it overlapped with a uh, related native plant. So this is called Senecio triangularis. <clears throat> And the moth is pretty specific in terms of what plants it can complete development on. And this was kind of like tested prior to release, but it turned out that this native plant, Senecia triangularis, which is also called arrowleaf groundsel, um, was a suitable host plant. So for the past couple decades, we've actually had a populations of the moth that are living entirely just on the native plant rather than the weed that it was supposed to um, control. So when did this release occur of the cinnabar moth or the, the caterpillar? Mm -hmm. And how long did it take to, I guess, what's the time frame where it was sort of discovered that there was potentially a problem mm -hmm. here? Um, let's see. So it was really started in the 70s. And then um, in the early 90s, they had discovered that... Um, that there was this what they call non-target effect so that the caterpillar had established on a native plant and um, that was when they halted redistribution so the other two insects i believe they they continued to do some uh, releases in terms of biological control because they weren't causing any problems but the moth was uh, taken off the um, 
redistribution list. <laughs> okay, so curious, how do you study this interaction? And um, I guess where do you study it as well? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good question. Um, so um, I'm kind of stepping into this uh, story after um, a couple different people have studied different elements of um, the interaction between uh, the cinnabar moth and um, Senecio triangularis. And um, I'm kind of honing in on the possibility that um, if the cinnabar moth is eating the flowers of Senecio triangularis and the seeds, that that could be cause that that in particular might change um, the risk of for the plant. Um, and so that's something that I have studied in a couple ways. Um, I did a seed sowing experiment up on Mary's Peak. Okay. Um, so, so can mm -hmm. you explain how that process works of seed sowing? Yeah. Sort of more of a broad outline of what that consists of. Sure, yeah. Um, so I gathered and cleaned some Senecio triangularis seeds, which is actually an adventure of its own involving a shop vac and some other things. <laughs> but um, once I had some um, good viable seeds, um, I laid out um, 45 experimental plots. Um, these are little quarter meter square plots, so pr pretty small scale. Um, and then in each of these, I would sow um, up to a thousand seeds um, or uh, kind of a medium level, like 300 seeds or none. And um, the purpose of this was just to see if uh, seed reduction uh, scenarios, like if uh, basically kind of mimicking if the moth were to eat all the seeds of a plant, uh, whether those seed reduction scenarios would actually translate to fewer seedlings um, in the following spring. So you mentioned that you shot facts. <laughs> and I'm always curious about like the practicality. I'm so sorry. <coughs> yeah, so I'm curious. How do you? How does that that process work with the with the, with shop, the shop back? back. Like that sure. sounds like sort of a unconventional <laughs> tool. But I one thing about um, talking to uh, different grad students is that sometimes that's necessary to incorporate mm. different sort of not of unconventional mm -hmm. techniques absolutely yeah. yeah yeah you um have a clear goal in mind um but then you come across these uh barriers that's kind of like well yeah. uh, you kind of have to come up with creative solutions so this was yes. actually um something that i learned from um a gentleman named John Anderson, and he has a native seed uh, nursery, or has had a native seed nursery, and um, so he has a lot of different techniques uh, that he's developed for different types of plants, and so for this type of seed, which um, has, it's kind of like a dandelion, uh, so it has this uh, little seed, tiny seed, and then uh, kind of like these bristly hairs attached to it, so you have to separate those, so um, basically, uh, <laughs> we were sucking the seeds into the shop back, um, and, uh, the motor was covered with a t-shirt. Mm -hmm. So there, so it's basically, it's just yeah. like finding ways to mechanically quickly separate all these little seeds from sure. the bristles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this, uh, you were talking about your experimental setup where sure. you were, um, kind of replicating the the ramifications of mm -hmm. the moth eating all of the seeds mm -hmm. or some of them mm -hmm. or none of them mm -hmm. and the effect that would have on yeah. the plant. And what did you find from your study? Um, yeah, I, um, 
the first thing that I uh, found was just that I, I did get seedlings to germinate, which was exciting. Um, it's a long life perennial plant, um, so we don't necessarily see seedlings that often or we might not even know what they look like. Okay. Um, it, this plant might live for decades. We're actually not quite sure. Um, so this was a big gap in knowledge that we wanted to fill. So um, just getting any any seedling germination was uh, quite a success. It, was, it meant that um, I, we provided enough of, like, of an array of conditions that we got germination. So that was great. Um, beyond that, I did find that um, adding seed, so if you compare the plots where I added no seed to um, all the plots where I did add seeds, um, there was quite an effect of um, like more seedlings. Um, so there was uh, nearly no germination of seedlings in plots with no seed added. Now there were mature plants in this setting, so it was possible that there was gonna be seed coming in from other sources. So it still was kind of a surprise. Um, but definitely when I added seeds, I, I saw more seedlings germinate. So that's something we call uh, confirming seed limitation. It means that the plant is seed limited um, if it's not able to sow enough uh, seeds or kind of like the more seeds that are sown, the more seedlings the plant will have. Um, so that was a confirmation. and. Um, I did see quite a, a variety of responses. So I think about half my plots had no seedlings, regardless of what the treatment was. So um, so it still matters um, what the environmental conditions are, and that's something that could be looked into further. But, um, but yeah, it was quite a, a success for me. Um, so where did you carry out these studies? And they it was in Oregon, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that seed sowing experiment was on Mary's Peak, actually. Um, <clears throat> uh, that was a suitable place because um, we have Senecio triangulars populations there, and actually uh, the cinnabar moth is there as well. So okay. that's something, some place that we have seen this interaction happening for many years, and it's nearby, so that was kind of nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I did some um, observational studies over the past two years, um, so that kind of like full summer field seasons, and that took place in the Oregon Cascades and Coast Range. So sites in the Oak Ridge area, down on the Willamette Pass, and then um, uh, we have we have the lab group has sites as far up as uh, Mount Hood. Um, and then in the coast range, um, a couple sites there as well. So one thing that I'm always curious about with um, when you're doing these observational studies is how do you um, really keep track of your area that you're surveying and make sure that you're, I guess, are you controlling for any sort of variables or how difficult is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so in my work overall, I actually ended up doing like an experiment in the field, some experiments in the lab, and then these like bigger observational studies. And it's kind of with each of those levels, you're controlling more or less things. So when you work in a lab, you're controlling many things, most things. When you do a field experiment, okay, you're get, getting a little bit more variation, but you're hoping to c control enough things that you get signal above the noise, as they say. Yeah. And then observational study, you really just are uh, kind of at the, the whim of <laughs> what <laughs> happens. And um, so I did some environmental monitoring. Um, so I, I measured like ambient temperature at my sites and soil moisture and soil temperature at my sites to get an idea of what um, what kinds of things were 
impacting the interactions that I saw. Um, but then, uh, and then I kind of, uh, focused in on a set of plants, which I tagged, um, and we'll come back to, um, every about 10 days and measure the same plants so that I could kind of control a little bit of variation that way too, just by at least looking at the same individuals. So you mentioned also that this is a long life perennial mm -hmm. and how does the long life aspect of the plant figure into that? Does that complicate it by yes. a significant measure? <laughs> it does. It does indeed. So I, I think the reason that we still look at this interaction after, um, you know, 30 years or whatever is because um, it's possible that there are effects that would it uh, that from the caterpillar say from this like added uh, huge added herbivory by this caterpillar um, that it would take a very long time to see because if the adult plants are are still doing okay but there are no new seedlings coming in to replace them then you have what what they call a remnant population an aging population and we we are kind of familiar with this with some forests and stuff like that but that people talk about like okay, you see the aspens, but where are the seedlings? Okay, you, you have like oaks, but where are the seedlings? That means they're not replacing themselves. So that is really what I came in to check um, was just, um, okay, in the past we had said there's kind of low to moderate risk to the plant based on uh, what we've measured directly, but um, without knowing whether they're re recruiting or like bringing in new seedlings, um, we could be seeing remnant populations and there could be hidden impacts um, yeah. So in how do you go about assessing sort of the global damage done? What were your kind of your conclusions from your work? Is this a what sort of interaction is this and is mm -hmm. it actively damaging um, or is it mm -hmm. more stable? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I would, I'm still analyzing um, my data from the observational studies. Um, so I'm not exactly um, clear on what the story is that I captured there. Um, I would say in general, it seems like the interaction between the cinnabar moth and Sinistra triangularis is pretty stable. Um, but um, I think we've also seen some signals that that could really depend on climate and some of our drier years in recent, um, in the past five years, we've had a couple years of pretty significant drought and very low snowpack. And, uh, so we did start to see actually plant mortality, um, which hadn't been observed before and, um, smaller plants and, uh, plants that had been flowering mature, um, plants, uh, kind of reverted back to a, a non-flowering state. And so it seems like these years were, were hard on them. And so in that case, the caterpillar might be an added element that mm -hmm. um, could kind of push things farther. And that's um, something that both uh, my, myself and my work, and then also the previous grad student to me, um, that we both kind of have tried to incorporate in what we can publish out of this. Okay. So there is the, there are added components that sort of, increase the complexity in looking mm -hmm. at the effect of climate change potentially and mm -hmm. those environmental specific aspects. Mm -hmm. So what can be done? Is there is there anything to be done, anything to be acted upon from learning about this interaction mm -hmm. in 
sort of modeling um, future methods of biological control. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's a uh, good question. So I, I think um, uh, this has been a unique system in terms of like how long we've studied the impacts um, on on a native plant. So these non-target impacts. So we really can make some um, suggestions for for bio or have been able to make suggestions for biological control out of this. Uh, one thing I'll note is that based on like current standards. Um, the cinnabar moth wouldn't be released if it was being considered uh, right now because the test that they did prior to release did show it had potential to eat other plants. And um, so Oregon Department of Agriculture and other um, agencies in the U.S. are stricter these days about um, making releases. Um, But I think from this case and actually a couple other um, research groups are are working on similar things, uh, we're kind of seeing that we might have to consider things such as like shifting climates and also um, evolution of insects after they're released. Um, Those might be elements that we have to consider when um, testing agents and making new releases. Um, And so, yeah, it's it's just kind of getting a little bit more information about the types of um, like, I guess, the ways that climate can feed into these interactions. It's it's pretty complex. It's um, yeah climate affects plants in different ways than it does insects. And so when you're looking at that interaction, uh, it gets uh, complicated. Yes, (laughs) of course. Mm -hmm. Um, So part of the initial um, reason to explore this further was its impact, the impact of tansy ragwort on cattle. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that precipitated the need for um, this uh, approach for biological mm-hmm. control. Mm-hmm. And can you go into a little bit of background about why that was necessary in the first place? Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. yeah. I think we see this pretty often these days that um, with biological invasions, a lot of, because it's kind of a self perpetuating problem, like uh, populations, if they're doing well, usually for weeds, like if they're doing well, they're going to get bigger, they're going to reproduce more. So, a lot of times the cost of inaction is too high and that's how we kind of get into the situation of weighing different options like chemical control or um, manual like uh, people going in and pulling them out or different kinds of manual removal um, and then biological control so that's kind of where that fits in is that um, there's kind of costs and risks to each of these and um, they tend to be actually kind of high, you know, um, even the the cost, uh, whether it's ecological or economic of going out and spraying an invasive weed can be quite high, but at the same time, the cost of inaction um, is often higher um, and that's both economic and ecological. Okay. So looking at what you've accomplished here at OSU, um, what inspired you or sort of precipitated your wanting to pursue graduate work in the first place mm-hmm. and specifically in this area? <clears throat> um, I was really drawn to study um, invasive plants. Um, and part of that is that I had been working with a nonprofit in uh, Seattle doing urban forest restoration, and um, I've always been a, a plant person. Um, but this was kind of my first time, like uh, actually, like living in a 
pretty big city and then interacting with those ecosystems. And, um, and so I was, I was working with, um, grubbing a lot of blackberry and English ivy and, um, kind of like looking at these systems that were pretty heavily invaded and thinking, wow, like actually as like a lot of people interact with plants these ways, a lot of people live in cities and they just mostly know, um, these little green pockets and parks and, uh, green spaces around cities that are heavily invaded. So actually a lot of, a lot of people are most familiar with blackberry and like a lot, a lot of these species that we think of as like bad species. (laughs) Um, so, um, I was kind of mulling that over and just like really curious about like, uh, what, you know, some of those basic questions about invasive plants, what makes a plant invasive? Like, why is this, why is this one plant so much more successful than another? Um, and there are just a lot of questions to be answered there. And then thinking about it from that aspect of like, these are the types of plants that a lot of people are in contact with and um, that these um, urban ecosystems are really impacted by. Um, I just wanted to um, have more overview on that and kind of get deeper into some of those questions. Um, so yeah, when I decided to uh, apply to graduate school, that's exactly where I looked. Um, and um that actually is a, a broad topic and it lead, led me in a lot of different directions. Um, and so, you know, in this case, I'm actually working on the biological control insect and a native plant, not invasive plants at all. But, um, but for, there are a lot of similar elements and a lot of, uh, the underlying questions remain the same. And so, um, I do feel like all of my current work is <clears throat> going to inform more work that I would like to do with, um, with urban ecosystems um an invasion yeah so you were um working in seattle at the nonprofit, and so this was really related to urban forest restoration or those urban Mm -hmm. forest settings Mm -hmm. and so can you tell us uh, more about your experience interacting with the community there and learning about the importance of those urban forest spaces. And um, specifically, it it sounds like that area that you were working in was really pretty important to the local um, ecosystem mm-hmm. and the community there in mm-hmm. Seattle. Yeah, so I was working with a nonprofit called Nature Consortium. Um, they uh, kind of came out of a community group that was advocating to um, save uh, and keep together portions of the West Duwamish Greenbelt, which is Seattle's largest urban forest. It's about 400 to 500 acres. Um, and it is um, it's definitely important uh, to the community and then also ecologically important to the area. Um, and it's... Um, it's kind of on an embankment above the Duwamish River, which is, um, uh, it's, uh, some people might know it as an EPA Superfund site. <laughs> it's a highly polluted river, but it's also um, socially and culturally very important. Um, and so that's, uh, the Duwamish River was at the, or is the home of the Duwamish tribe, which is not federally recognized, but um is the tribe one of the tribes that Chief Seath was actually um, uh, from? And so, 
that kind of ties in these uh, a lot of like socioeconomic, cultural um, kind of values to this green belt, which acts as uh, provides a lot of ecosystem services, whether it's erosion control or filtration of um, runoff coming from West Seattle. Um, so, and it's uh, it's a kind of typical of city spaces. It's it's highly invaded, and actually they were. Um, watching that a lot of the trees, uh, speaking of trees replacing themselves, (laughs) a lot of the trees uh, were old deciduous trees reaching the end of their lifespan. So um, people working with this organization and a couple other ones were recognizing that we needed to do kind of some like massive efforts to uh, replant native species, get like Douglas fir back in and get um, kind of a cycle going there. And then also to remove a lot of the blackberry, English ivy and other things that were um, kind of... uh, interrupting the ecosystem services of this forest. And so your role at at this organization, the nonprofit, was um, leading um, groups and mm-hmm. kind of <clears throat> informing people about what was being done at mm-hmm. the nonprofit. Yeah. And so um, can you tell us a little more about your the specific Mm-hmm. tasks that you were doing there. Sure, yeah. I was a I was an intern uh, yeah. for the forest restoration program. Um and so I led um a weekly or um they happened twice a week, but um uh, we each led weekly uh, work parties, so that's um uh, volunteer-based work parties where we would just go and um do the forest restoration work. So we had kind of like target areas and different tasks that had to be done in each, sometimes maintaining spaces, sometimes starting from scratch with these spaces. And um, uh, so I was doing um, volunteer leading and then also education. So uh, kind of like tying the overall story together for our volunteers so that they could have an idea of what they were contributing to, um, which kind of like helped people feel engaged and maybe come back and volunteer with us again. And uh, sometimes I did, yeah, we did like some more educational programs uh, for folks working for companies and stuff like that who came to us for programming. Okay. So you had this experience working for this nonprofit, but I'm curious to know how you got interested in in studying plants and ecology in the first place. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's see. I went to um, undergrad at Oberlin College in Ohio. It's a small liberal arts school. And um, there I had decided at one point to study biology. Um, I I did creative writing and biology, but uh, Mm -hmm. um, did a lot of plant um, biology in specific there. And um, so I got into this plant systematics lab and started doing undergraduate research and just exploring the different things that um, I could do with that. And... Um, yeah, I'd never quite been sure if plants were like a hobby, passion kind of side project kind of thing or something that I wanted to do as a career. Um, so I started toying with those ideas back in um, an undergrad. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. Oh, and, and then I think in between that that was true as well, that um, I t- took uh, years off in between coming back to grad school um, and I... Um, was kind of toying with the idea of do I want to be um, uh, involved with kind of the food side of plants and like food systems and growing, uh, farming, that kind of thing, um, or 
did I want to be on the plant science side? So that was still something that I kind of had to puzzle through and answer. That that time off that mm-hmm. you took between your undergrad and then coming to grad school mm-hmm. where you worked at the nonprofit and um, that, do you think that that time off and sort of made your experience in grad school more, let's say, directed or did that shape that mm-hmm that time off did that shape your experience in a sense or what you wanted to pursue? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, it was important for me when I finished my bachelor's degree, uh, it was, it felt really important to me to know why I was doing further schooling, if I was going to do further schooling. So that was uh, definitely, I just, I like only wanted to come back to this kind of atmosphere of like, like just like, uh, really intense focus and all this kind of stuff. I, I love school, um, but I really throw myself fully into it. And so I wanted to know exactly what, uh, what I was doing and what I wanted to do with it. And so, um, taking that time off, um, I got to focus on some other things. Um, I, um, but I think one thing that, uh, that meant for coming back to grad school was that I really, uh, did feel driven, as you said, and did feel uh, like I know what what I want, and also I know what kind of lifestyle I want to like maintain while I'm going to school, and um, I know what I that like. Basically, I'm I'm coming to graduate school to get this degree to get to the other side and start working on some of these um, problems that I was seeing working for the nonprofit, like just you know um, urban spaces or whatever it would may be, and get a little bit more of uh, like a powerful background to be working with um, so that I could kind of step in and make, um, have more vision basically. Yeah. So now that you are finishing up your master's degree, um, what I, I feel like you probably have a vision for what you want to do going forward. So what does that look like for you? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I'm definitely curious about what, uh, is going on in Portland in terms of this type of um, same type of urban ecology, uh, urban forestry kind of stuff that I was uh, peering into in Seattle. Um, I think every uh, place does things differently in terms of like what nonprofits are working on um, urban ecology versus um, uh government agency kind of things and um there are like soil and water conservation districts there are watershed councils there are lots of people who are trying to address the issues brought about by um, invasions in human impacted spaces so um i think it will take a little bit of um on the ground work to see what is going on and where i fit within that um and that could eventually lead to more school like i would definitely consider again kind of in the same sense i I would consider a phd if i knew uh what i wanted to do and why (laughs) what i wanted to do with it um so that's possible down the line um but it it could look very different from um, my master's degree so i i kind of wanted to give the the time and serendipity to <laughs> see how that <laughs> unfolds. Absolutely. Sounds good. So we have two traditions on the show now that we're getting close to closing out our interview. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one being um, we ask you to dispense a piece of advice to yourself at an earlier time or really the audience of your choosing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So can you share that with us? Yeah. Um, so this is something that I'm still working on. So it can be for my prior self or, <laughs> or it can be for, um, yeah, people considering graduate school or really anyone. Uh, and this is, um, I'm, I'm working on being okay with asking quote unquote stupid questions. Um, and so one of the things that I had to um, do in order to I, I actually did not know a lot about grad school and about how it works. And I had to go and have some really awkward conversations about what is a master's degree? What is a master of science versus a master of environmental management? What, what does a terminal degree mean? What, uh, who, who gets a master's, who gets a PhD? And actually even the way that I asked that question of like, uh, who, instead of like, why, why get a master's or a PhD? Um, there are a lot of people who kind of have narratives about, um, like what these things mean. And, and so it, it was a little tricky to kind of work through that and, and feel like I was way on the outside of the system looking in being like, I don't know anything. Where do I start? <laughs> so, um, just being okay with, with, um, uh, having that be obvious that you don't know. Um, I think that's important and that goes for so many things. Just be okay asking stupid questions. <laughs> that's, so true and so important to remember I feel like sometimes you're expected it feels like you're expected to have all the answers mm -hmm. but you know you don't so yeah mm -hmm. yeah I can definitely re relate to that I feel mm -hmm. like as opposed to you who took the time to figure things out before going to graduate school mm -hmm. I feel like I'm figuring it out <laughs> as I'm going through the process right so. yeah no I didn't yeah. I did not get all the answers on the <laughs> before starting but um, but yeah I had to even just to apply to the right programs I did have to do some poking and just be like what what am I looking at what am I doing yeah so yeah it's definitely a non-transparent process mm -hmm. yeah for sure, for sure. So our other tradition is for you to choose a song that we will play here in a, uh, in a minute. Mm -hmm. And um, so can you tell us about the song you chose and why you chose it? Sure. <laughs> I uh, chose the song Gone Insane by Lucius. Um, and uh, let's see, I actually heard the two vocalists of the song uh, talking about how it had come about and that they were having an argument with each other and um, that it was one of the few arguments that they've had, but it was really big and explosive. And afterwards they, they wrote this song together and I feel like you can hear in it both. Um, it's kind of like um, high emotion, but also like, and kind of this like anger, but also like a lot of love in, in that anger. Um, and so I feel like maybe that's, maybe that's partly the relationship that I've had with like, say my thesis <laughs> where, um, I'm kind of fighting with it, but I, I love it. And, uh, and so there's nothing wrong with that big emotion. There's nothing wrong with, uh, uh that. And then also just, um, I just, there's a couple lines in here that I just really love about, um, just claiming that. So. Sounds good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. yeah thank thanks you for, for being having me here. Mm -hmm.